Hello, this is Father Hightower, and welcome to Vox SFX, the voice of St. Francis Xavier Parish in Missoula, Montana, and sponsored in part by the Foundation for the Diocese of Helena. We are so pleased that you have joined us. Your participation enriches our community. We hope that our show serves as a point of light, helping to deepen our understanding and experience of the Catholic faith and history. Join us as we seek through prayer, study, interviews, and discussion the roots of our ancient mysteries. Hello, and welcome to Vox SFX, the voice of St. Francis Xavier Parish in Missoula, Montana. We appreciate you all taking some time to sit with us today and learn a little bit about liturgy. Now, liturgy is a broad subject. It can cover all sorts of things from the colors that we use in our masses to the music choices that we have to the readings that we do. Liturgy is and encompasses everything that makes a mass a mass. And if you've never participated in the liturgical process, there might be some things that you are unaware of. And many of us, myself included, when I first started this study, were perhaps in, in uh, not confusion necessarily, but in question of, why the colors? Why purple during Advent and Lent? Why green during ordinary time? You know, why do we sing certain songs at certain times of the year? These things all co- coincide with our ancient traditions, stretching back to the very foundations of the church. So please, learn with us as we explore some of the really cool aspects of our Catholic liturgy. together is Father Cochran. Uh, thank you for coming on, Father. Well, it's a pleasure, Nicholas. So right now we're in the process of starting a new liturgical year. Uh, we, I mean, we did a while ago, but this is kind of the beginning. We're getting ramped up. Mm-hmm. As Catholics, we go through a lot of different changes in liturgy, but in, in a big way, the appearance of the church, we go through these different colors associated with these different times of year. Why do we do that? Well, I think just as we decorate our homes for different times of year, for parties, for anniversaries, uh, remembrances, and so forth, liturgy is the work of the people. And the more that you affect environment, the more people are going to pay attention because, first of all, the scriptures are going to change in each liturgical season. And then as the colors change, they remind us that we're doing something different. So the beginning of the liturgical year is Advent, and the color is violet. And yes, it's in some ways a penitential season, but it's a preparation season, preparation for the nativity. And then once we have completed Advent, we break out all the white, sometimes gold, Lights are much brighter, sometimes the use of more candles. The vestments that the priest wear go from violet to white and sometimes very decorative. And the whole Christmas season, from the nativity, from the vigil of the nativity through the baptism of the Lord, is that season. And then we start with winter ordinary time. And at least in North America, 
we would think about this time as winter. Now, if we were in South America, they might just call it ordinary time. And again, the word ordinary doesn't mean blah or just day after day, but rather it's counted time. So you may notice, especially you as a lector or as a cantor, at the beginning of Mass, you would say this is the third Sunday in ordinary time or counted time from the Latin ordinaris to be counted. So we think of ordinal numbers, first, second, third, and fourth, and so on. So ordinary time, there's a gap there between the baptism of the Lord and Ash Wednesday. And that it all depends on when the date of Easter is set. And then when we go into Lent, it, which is truly a penitential season, we break out the violet and things are a little more somber. The readings are a little more introspective. Then the whole theme is walking with Jesus and preparing for that Paschal mystery. So during Holy Week, which starts with Palm Sunday of our Lord's Passion, on that day it's red because of the idea of about the blood of Christ being spilled. And then we have a short period of violet. Then the Easter Triduum comes along, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Vigil, Easter Sunday. And then we have the 50 days of Pentecost, or the, that Easter season leading up to Pentecost. Following the celebration of Pentecost, there are a couple of special Sunday celebrations, Corpus Christi, Trinity Sunday, uh, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the heart of, Sacred Heart of Jesus. And then we go back into a long period of green, of ordinary time. And again, that's when, for North America, things are growing. And so green kind of symbolizes the certain joy of the earth coming up. And the readings are kind of following a pattern uh, from which of the Gospels we've chosen for that year. And the music is a little more celebratory, but also kind of goes into a certain rhythm until we get back to Advent again. So it's a very circular thing. And a lot of times there's calendars, circular calendars put out that show the different colors and the different times of year. I need to pick one of those up because I like to match my tie. You had mentioned uh, the yes. cantry, and I like to match my tie to whatever <laughs> liturgical mm-hmm. season it is. Yeah, and you and many other people, they, they like for Pentecost, a lot of people will bring their red, uh, a red shirt, a red scarf, a red tie. Other times of year, uh, people want to celebrate their faith in the clothes they wear as well as their, where their heart is at that time. So when we look at some of these colors, we see that they repeat. For instance, you had said purple for Advent and Lent. Correct. And then the two... Actually, violet. Violet, It's close to purple. Mm -hmm. Why that distinction, by the way? Between violet and purple? Yeah. I guess it's... I couldn't give you an easy answer on that other than uh, people who work with colors might be able to differentiate that a little more, but... The idea is that it's a season of preparation. Uh, Advent, preparation for Christmas, 
Lent preparation for Easter. And so when we kind of take on a somber color, uh, especially violet does kind of have a, a very serious look to it. Other churches have done, you know, using blue or other darker colors. Um, but the idea of violet kind of says, pay attention. Something, something's out of the ordinary. Violet is not necessarily a regular color that we would see except in certain plants. No, I can, yeah, I can see that. Mm -hmm. I had always kind of presupposed that it was because like purple specifically was like a royal color associated with emperors and kings. And so maybe the church was trying to say, hey, we, we like that same color, but we're going to separate ourselves a little bit by saying that it's violet rather than purple. I, I have no idea. If that's I true. would have to do a little more research on that. Um, in the time of Jesus, uh, in that Mediterranean world, purple as you said, it was a royal color, and it was very purple garments were very difficult to find, and those who traded in those garments were often well well to do people. So green, green happens twice, like you said, and so violet is coming into the season. It's a somber color. It's a reflective color. Yes, green uh, is during the growing season, like you said, but there's also that period in the winter where there's green as well. What, what is the, the symbolism behind the green? I guess green would, would be a color that we would be accustomed to, be, to see. Perhaps you might look at it as green. We're anticipating the earth coming forth alive again in color. Um, but since it's ordinary time, and we've chosen to have green uh, for the majority of the church year, then uh, we're going to just use green in that introductory time. The, the winter ordinary time can be as short as five or six weeks, or it could go nine weeks. Just it, it all depends on the calculation of Easter. How do they calculate Easter? Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon, after Passover. Hmm. And again, part of it does uh, depend upon what place on earth that you are doing the calculation. Uh, so some years, we and the Orthodox Church will have Easter on the same uh, Sunday. Sometimes we'll be a week off, and then sometimes we're a whole lunar cycle off because the Orthodox Church is very insistent that the Passover must be complete before they would calculate, look for the first Sunday after the first full moon after Passover. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the lunar cycle because the early church, uh, much like the Hebrew calendar, was kind of based on a, a lunar cycle calendar. It was, and the, uh, the, the movement it probably came from a civil uh, leadership to go from the uh, following the lunar calendar to a sun-based calendar. And uh, so then the, the calendar uh, that we have today had a correction made in the late 1500s. And so we switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. Associated with Julius Caesar and Pope Gregory. Right. Yes, uh, to make it simple. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you said, it's it's a. I know that we have leap year now, yes. but to make it a bit more accurate. I'm yes, assuming. 
And it was, uh, it is interesting that um, one of the famous uh, scientists, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Tyson uh, has great praise for the Jesuits, hmm. even though he's not a man of religion. I saw this recently where he praised the Jesuits uh, for correcting the solar calendar that had been off by 12 days. Uh, that the uh, early Jesuits who were mathematicians and astronomers had discovered that the calendar, there was 12 days, things were out of whack. Hmm. And so the Pope decided, you know, made a special decree and said, we're going to forget about these 12 days and we're going to jump ahead so that the calendar, that it'll be a, a full year around the sun. And then the extra every four years, an extra day to make up for that, uh, the way that the earth kind of wobbles a bit. A leap year. Yes, a leap, a leap day, mm -hmm. <laughs> leap year. And so every four years, there's an extra day. So February 29th uh, is in a leap year, which is com coming up this uh, year. It is. And it's kind of easy to remember because it's also a major election year as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Is that, is, and that's consistent, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Huh. It's just the way that the U.S. has set up its election cycle. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. So we, we've gone a little bit into violet and a mm -hmm. bit into green. White also features heavily in yes. our liturgy. Yes. Uh, white uh, for the nativity and for the resurrection. And especially when we celebrate uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, white white and blue are her colors, but especially white. When we celebrate a saint that um, died of natural causes, not a martyr, uh, we would wear white. Uh, we would wear red for a martyr, and we wear red on Palm Sunday and then on Good Friday as well. So again, the, the colors tell us something different's happening. It's like in a school when there's a, going to be an assembly the schedule gets changed. Classes get shorter, and then sometimes students wear distinctive clothing for an assembly. And same thing for our liturgical cycle. It, it reminds us that something different is happening. And especially, I think, it was more thought of that when people did not have uh, access to uh, reading, to books, that they would see in what the priest wore the way the church is decorated, that something is different. So it could be a way for for them to be marking time as well, even if they didn't have a calendar Ca at home. Correct. Or something. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. No, I, I do really like it. It keeps mm -hmm. things, and our our music kind of changes too. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Later on in this episode, we'll be speaking to Heidi Martin about how the the music liturgy mm -hmm. changes. Mm -hmm. But it, it it keeps things interesting too. Yes. It keeps it kind of fresh. So we like we work with Heidi and uh, the song after communion the post-communion song, normally we have the Anima Christi, not the Sushi Pei. And, but that's, we've kind of decided to keep that in ordinary time, in the regular time. And then during Advent and during Lent and during the Easter season, we'll have a different uh, post-communion song. And again, it just, it reminds us that something different's happening uh, it's the faith is still being celebrated, but it's also being deepened. You know, every year when we think about a person's birthday, 
Sometimes it's, it's a different gift. Maybe we go to a different restaurant or a different type of birthday cake to celebrate that person maybe becoming uh, into a new generation of their life, you know, from a toddler to a teen, teen to an adult, young adult into a mature adult, uh, a mature adult to an elder. Well, it's interesting you put it that way because we call it the living church. Yes. And so tracking the year like that, much like we would for a person, mm -hmm. is tracking. I mean, what are we on? Year 2024? <laughs> well, according to the calendar that we have in front of us, that this is the year of our Lord, 2024. And here we are. <laughs> and here we are. And here we go. And here we go. You know, the the church is trying to bring into its life the life of its people and the people that we go out and work among, live among, the good news, and trying to integrate that into what we sing, what we proclaim, what we read, um, the faith that we have handed down to us from the time of the apostles, and the different theologians and church people who have striven to open that up. And sometimes it's been well-received and not always well-received as well. Well, because we've done changes. Like you said, with the Gregorian calendar being a massive example, but mm -hmm. Vatican II, uh, the elimination mm -hmm. of, of Latin, I mean, again, things change. It isn't yeah. the exact same as it once was. Well, we haven't eliminated Latin. The official language of the church, the Roman Catholic Church, is still Latin, or we're known as the Latin Rite. Latin in the early centuries was the language of the people of the uh, Western Empire, the influence of Rome. It was kind of like the way you and I speak English, people spoke Latin. Sure. And so any official document that comes from uh, the church has to be in Latin in order for it to be promulgated. There's been instances where uh, many of the documents that come to us now uh, because of the influence of European uh, and more of South American with Pope Francis and with Africa, some of the documents originate in Italian or French, uh, sometimes in German as well. The catechism of the church, the most recent catechism, began life in French. And they had the first official copies. And uh, when I was in theology in Boston, and uh, the bishop there mentioned that, uh, well, the, the catechism had just come out in English. And some of the people said, well, why didn't it come out in English first? And the bishop basically had to say, well, it was the French scholars, uh, theologians, and it was the language that was most prevalent, maybe, among the Pope's advisors and theologians. And uh, so and France does have a great tradition of scholarship. And so, and also Germans with Pope Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict. Pope Francis now, many of his letters originate in Spanish because that's his first language although he does speak Italian pretty well, I think that he would still probably want to write in Spanish. 
And the same thing with our uh, Father General of the Jesuits, who, Father Sosa. Uh, he's from Venezuela. And so he does speak some English, and he does speak pretty good Italian, but Spanish is his first language, and many of the letters that we would receive from him come in Spanish. So it's not like every correspondence written between priests or bishops or even from the Pope is written all in Latin. There's no vernacular going no. on, too. There's mostly vernacular, but if it's an official teaching of the church, official document, for it to be promulgated, it must be there must be a Latin translation of it, even if it originates in French or German or Spanish. That's fascinating. Well, Father, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think, you know, we've kind of uh, skimmed the surface. There's there's a lot of deep dives that we're probably going to be uh, bringing forth. And so we want to uh, just say where we're starting and then where we're going to dive in deeper. Yes, Father. Well, uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Nicholas, for having me. talk about uh, a bit more of the specific things concerning the the nitty-gritty of the liturgy is our coordinator of liturgy, Erin Turner. Erin, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. So we've been discussing about like there, there are a lot of things going on behind the scenes. There's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of kind of ritual and shaping of the service that kind of goes on. People may not notice that, mm-hmm. like the detail that goes into it. Right. And in terms of some of that detail... I think that you're a big player for that. So uh, let's talk about what that is real quick. Well, you know, I always encourage people, um, especially like if I'm working with the RCIA folks um, that are just learning about the Catholic faith, I always tell them to really pay attention to the sanctuary and look at the colors, look at, um, you know, whether it's very um, stark or if it's decorated a lot, Mm -hmm. um, because that will indicate kind of what's going on in the liturgy. And um, and kind of within the calendar year, and so I think that's I think it's an important thing for all of us to kind of pay attention to when it's you know when it's really stark and there's just not a whole lot of decoration that would indicate that maybe it's a time that we spend kind of looking within ourselves, and we see that during Advent, during Lent, mm-hmm. um, and the you know the rest of the time, um, obviously during Christmas and Easter, um, you know we pull out the the best of the best and everything is decorated a lot more ordinary time is just you know just kind of like our houses at home um, during the summertime they're decorated but not you know to the hilt no and like you were saying I know around the Christmas time our our uh, altar area was just bright Mm -hmm. you had those decorations up to the trees and the lights that it it just gave this warm glow Mm -hmm. which is what we need during this winter time exactly (laughs) without a doubt that brightness exactly Right. And we try to kind of mirror what's going on seasonally, but then also obviously within the, the readings and, and what that season is really trying to convey to the people. So when you're trying to convey the, the, the point of this season, what are the important elements uh, to, to shaping that experience for people? Mm, I think we go to our senses like we always do. So it's the sight, it's the hearing. So, you know, the music, um, the sense, the smell, um, 
I always think of when I think of smells, I always think of um, on like Holy Thursday and Good Friday, lots of incense. (laughs) We smoke the people out, but there's a reason for that. I mean, it really, when people smell that frankincense, boy, it just takes them back to certain times that they remember either as kids or as adults um, within the church. And so um, when we tap into those senses, it really, it kind of creates some memories and, and some feelings that stay with people. Um, I love talking to the people that go through RCIA and even years later talking to them about their experience on Easter Vigil. Yeah. And, it, and it goes to those senses. It goes to what they saw, what they smelled, what they felt. Um, and so I think those are really important aspects as we design our liturgies. Well, it makes it into a really impactful experience mm-hmm. because, you know, we enjoy going to church. We enjoy the uh, the ambience. And, of course, you know, it's a huge part of being Catholic. Mm-hmm. But it's a totally different experience when it's a finely crafted thing, when you've got right. people who really care right. about how things are going down. And it sounds like you have an excellent team for doing that, too, because it's not, it's not just a solo gig. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. Yeah, it definitely is a whole team. Um, and we bring in a lot of different experience, um, which you know, is great and in different backgrounds as well. And so then it can be a lot more, um, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Diverse. Yes. Kind of thank perspective. you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I imagine that particularly that sacristy team is really important because there is a lot of precision mm. to that part of the ritual that it's, it's not like, like I couldn't just go up and suddenly be a sacristan. Like there's training right. and whatnot that goes into that. That's correct. I actually have three ladies um, that have volunteered to be in charge of the linens. Mm. And even within that, um, that we had to YouTube exactly how <laughs> to fold and, and iron because there's a certain, there are um, embroidered crosses on those linens and they need to be a, in a certain way. Um, and so, because as they unfold onto the altar, they need to be in a certain area. And so, um, yeah, there's, I mean, it's fun stuff. I mean, I think it's really, I love um, tradition and ritual. And so that's what you know, my position actually is all about. So I, I love that. And I love finding out, okay, we have to have the cross here. Right. And um, yeah, so those ladies um, take care of those linens every week. And they, are, um, they sign up for basically like a month. And then they rotate through. And, uh, and every week they collect the linens and they take them home. And, and there's, you know, because they are 100% linen, um, they have to be cared for in a very special way. So, Like you said, folded properly. So, mm-hmm. it, like, again, that, that experience of itself. Because if I were to fold the, the linens for the altar, <laughs> it would just kind of be this tangled mess. It would not be a, a regal or, or stately thing happening that's, up there. That's right. That's right. What I also love is that these ladies uh, approach it from a ministerial point of view. Sure. And so it's prayerful. And they do it with prayer. Um, and so there's something um, warming to think about um, as those linens are placed onto the altar that they were they were folded with prayer. Sure. And um, I just, I love that. I do too. Because, <laughs> I mean, when people are serving out of that place of ministry, uh, if they're serving out of a place of joy, mm-hmm. then it, it, it almost lends a more special energy. Absolutely. To it as well, because again, it's not just you know we send out to a linen company and we've got some random person doing it. It's done with love. It's done with, uh, like you said, prayerfulness. Yeah. 
So what's it like to see it all come together when, when, the, when the sacristan team is on point and the, the priest is interacting with everything and you've got the right people in the right place? What is that like? You know, I think it's probably like a director um, of, a, of a play when it's coming off. It's just that feeling of accomplishment. Hmm. But I also, at the beginning of, you know, I think of, you know, all our Holy Week services, which is, you know, the, kind of the high point of our year. And, and those are very detailed services. Um, and I have my checklist and I'm going down it. And then, you know, the minute I start getting stressed, I kind of stop because it's like, once the priest starts walking down the aisle, it's all out of my hands. Sure. And it's all in the Holy Spirit. And somehow it just always, it always happens. And we're so blessed with such a great, um, you know, team of priests that they know liturgy, they love liturgy, um, and they're very relaxed with it. So they don't get stressed out. Um, and if something, you know, if a chalice is forgotten or something, um, they just go with it and it just happens. And, it, you know, but for the most part, um, once it starts, the Holy Spirit takes over. And um, I think we have some beautiful liturgies. And Well, I, I enjoy the, the more quiet contemplative approach, too. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, liturgically speaking, we might be the most traditional, uh, if not among the most traditional mm-hmm. in the area. Correct. Which Correct. was one of the things that drew me to this particular church because, yeah, I, the, the frescoes and the stained mm-hmm. glass and the way that the liturgy comes together, um, it really creates a, a space of connection to yeah. one's ancestors, those who have, have prayed the same way, those who have celebrated mm-hmm. the Mass in the same way for time immemorial. It's, yeah. it's a connection. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like, um, you know, I've been in this parish for 30 years and, and doing ministry here for 30 years, which seems funny to say, but <laughs> but I think over the course of time, a lot of the other parishes have, you know, kind of vacillated how, the, you know, how they, how they do their masses. Um, you know, some have been more conservative and some have been more liberal, if, you know. That's a lack of better words for those. Um, I feel like St. Francis has just been consistent um, in in how we approach the liturgy. And um, I, you know, I would say that that probably has to do with the Jesuits and kind of their belief and um, and their presence here. And the consistency is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I first joined the church back in 2007. Okay. I was when I, when I went to the RCIA. Okay. And yeah. I, I was intermittent there again for a second, but every time I came back, it was it was like being welcomed in by an old friend mm-hmm. or, or by the Holy Spirit. Who right. had been, like the area had been consistent yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that's nice. I think, you know, sometimes, you know, we always, when we're doing liturgical planning, we always think, oh, do we need to add some freshness to this? Do we, we've been doing this this way for 30 years or 50 years. Should we add in something? And then it's like, yeah, but no. (laughs) (laughs) There's, like you said, there is something about that consistency. And, and, you know, I think about our, like our Holy Week services and they're so rich and so beautiful. And I feel like if we, if we completely changed those, um, people would miss certain aspects of that. Absolutely. Um, and I know, especially with those, you know, where it's just a, a yearly celebration, um, that people look forward to the certain rituals that we do once a year like that. So oh, absolutely. The, the sheer numbers that mm-hmm. are in there for Holy Week and mm-hmm. for Christmas, right. it, it's it, monumental. Yes. <laughs> and so making sure that we're... Creating a space for for everybody 
to kind of connect in that way, like you said. Yeah. Real quick before mm-hmm. we do a break, we're, when we're talking about these holy weeks, people are engaged with their families too. Like this is a time when it's not like everybody has perfect availability. How does that work? Making sure that you've got enough people in the spots that they need to be with all that other conflicting time. You know, I I can really speak to this because we just got done with Christmas and um, it was amazing. I mean, the the spreadsheet that I had and that I had to fill all of these spaces um, for all of the masses because, I mean, we had the fourth Sunday of Advent on top of then all the Christmas masses. Um, Yes, and like (laughs) you um, alluded to, we had a lot of people that, you know, were traveling. And so, um, but... You know, our community is amazing. I mean, they stepped up and every time I was like, okay, guys, we still have, you know, 10 more spots to fill. I mean, I had people that went to four different masses during Christmas to help minister um, and and happily. I mean, you know, and I always checked with them. Are you sure? Absolutely. You know, my kids aren't here this year. And so I'm happy to help out. Um, so we have such a great parish and they're so generous with their time and their resources that um, it does. It makes my job so much easier. Kind of feeds into itself at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. A good liturgy, which mm-hmm. brings in people who want to be a part of the good liturgy, which creates a good liturgy. <laughs> <Yep>. and... <laughs> it's all. Yep. It all just feeds into itself for okay. sure. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add uh, real quick, Erin? I don't think so. All right, perfect. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on and helping us understand a little bit more of what kind of goes into this this gorgeous environment that we enjoy in church. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. now in the studio is Heidi Martin, the Director of Music at St. Francis Xavier. Heidi, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Those of you who have listened to the Rosary may recognize her voice from doing the Joyful Mysteries, as well as the chorus in the background. Uh, Also, the piano. So, uh, Heidi, thank you for all you've done already for this show, and of course for coming on as well. Oh, of course. It's been so much fun, and it's been such a great experience. Mm. Well, your job is important. You know, it's it's one of those ones that, of course, I'm a musician, so I, I resonate, of course, with music. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things that music is, is it can sometimes be in the background, but it's a fundamentally human thing. It can make us joyful. It can make us weep. It can rouse us to passion. It can make us introspective. Music mm-hmm. is such a useful and diverse tool. What is it like trying to apply that to the liturgy, trying to create this space? I think it's one of the best challenges I've ever come across. Um, I think it's really a balance of trying to do the music without people realizing it's there while still realizing that it's there. You don't want it to be too crazy or too um, strange for the season that takes away from the liturgy for people, but you also want to make sure that there's a presence and that it assists them in whatever the celebration of that week is. Oh, of course. Uh, it's, yeah, it's about... about setting the setting, if yes. you will. Um, so when it comes to the seasons, Christmas, for instance, what kind of music are we choosing? Because Advent and Christmas, there's a there's a bit of a, a difference between those in terms of the approach, for instance. Yes. So when I 
uh, choose music, it's always based on the readings um, for the Sunday or for the season. And then especially when we're in special seasons like Advent, Christmas time, Lent, and Easter, um, there's overarching songs and themes that we always choose from for the music. There's also certain um, instruments, certain voices that are specific to the season that always, I think, help the people to really get into whatever season it is, whether it be more joyful season, more contemplative season, um, whichever season we're in. Well, I think that you know, in, in things like Advent or, mm-hmm. or Christmas, there's also some songs that are assumed, you mm-hmm. know, like not just yes. carols, but of course we have our like kind of traditional hymns, and that gives a lot to work with. But of course, there's still the idea of trying to keep it fresh, like you say, because people like consistency, people enjoy uh, tradition, mm-hmm. but. We also like to be shaken from our our rut (laughs) every now and then. Yes. How do you walk that balance? Yes, it's a very fine line, and um, people have a lot of opinions, which is really nice sometimes, Um, especially people that have been in their church for a really long time. They know um, the traditions, and it really does help people celebrate to have the same songs or psalms or whatever it may be for that season. Um, I have found a few things that it is always nice to change at least one big thing per season. Mm. I really think it helps people focus on, oh, this is a new song, this is um, a new psalm, and whatever it is. It's always great to learn new music, of course, and then it gives everyone a larger repertoire to pull from. Um, But it's also so important for people to be able to focus on new lyrics and new hymns and just bring people into a a new understanding of whatever that season may be. Sure. And there's also, it's interesting because you come from Dylan. Yes. And some of the songs that you did in Dylan that were very common, we've never done to hear at St. Francis. Or when you put them into the lineup, people are like, whoa, what is, what is this? And same thing here. And it's almost as though this, this big old hymnal, there's like, what, over 800 hymns mm-hmm. or something in there? And I feel like each, each church has like... 60. Yes. (laughs) They rotate. It is such an interesting, I'm sure somebody can do a sociological experiment on why certain churches use the songs that they do, but I remember one of my first weeks here, um, I was picking music, and I had picked music for the month, and I had made sure that it was all very familiar, you know, I didn't want to rock the boat or anything too soon, and there was one song at this first Eucharist that um, I sang growing up. Um, I know it like the back of my hand. I was like, oh, this one will be easy. And then every canter that Sunday, no one knew it. <laughs> so it's just, you never know what people are going to know. And it's um, it's really interesting to find out what people know. Well, as a canter, it's it's nice also to kind of be, not kept on my toes, but introduced to, to fresh material because most of the stuff that we do is not super complicated. It's mm-hmm. something that can be learned over a, a couple hours worth of practice. Yeah. But that that lack of complete familiarity still makes it novel. Yes, definitely. There's also enough different songs and different seasons that hopefully, especially me as a pianist also, you do get enough change in the music that there's that consistency that helps um, the reflective quality of the mass and the continuity through masses, while also changing it up and making sure that we're all on our toes a little bit. Well, and that's the other thing, too. It's not just the, the hymns that you're choosing. When you're there as a pianist, you're also playing music before Mass. There's that prelude time of about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Does the season influence what pieces you choose for that time? Yes. I think our different pianists have different outlooks. But um, speaking personally, of course, when we're in a more Advent time, I will play specific Advent hymns, um, maybe in a more lyrical style. And people don't even realize half the time that they're hymns. Um, of course, when it's around Christmas time, 
time I'll play some pretty recognizable Christmas music um, but especially when we're in Lent or anything like that I try to just choose music that's specific for the season even if there's no words to it. During ordinary time, I try to mix it up a little bit and um, find more stuff that's um, easy listening and can really bring the atmosphere around the church of whatever mass it is, whether it's contemplative or, you know, or the kind of happier, more upbeat 10 a.m. Sure. Um, so it just kind of depends on the mass and then, of course, on the season as always. Well, and, and of course, you've got a lot of, as a pianist, as a trained, like went to school pianist, you have a massive repertoire to be able to choose <laughs> from, which is which is really cool. I, that's just I'm always impressed with pianists. I, I, I stand and talk pretty. That's what I do. Uh, instrumentalists, y'all have a totally different game going, and uh, it's, it's very cool. Yeah, it's never something. I don't think when I started piano lessons, my mom thought that it would be, you know, like the, turn into this type of thing. But it's, um, I would suggest everyone uh, start their kids in music if that seems to be where their child is leaning. Well, and like we've been talking about, it can be a huge part of the of the mass making it prayerful because mm-hmm. uh, it you know it's those special seasons like we talked about it's novenas which are their own kind of mood that's being set as well you kind of got your work cut out for you yeah it's i really love um this time of year of course we go directly from advent into christmas time and then there's a very quick turnaround with lent and then of course saint, Fran- saint francis has the novena and everything we do our reconciliation services as well and it's always um, my favorite part of the job is just to pick music and really try to set the stage and the scene for everyone that walks into the church whether they come every sunday or every day or whether they're passing through or whether they just popped in for the first time ever i just want to make sure that um the environment is ready and the music supports the prayerfulness that comes with that. Well, as a regular attendee of St. Francis Xavier, I would say mission accomplished. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, did you have anything else you'd like to add before we um, end for the day? I don't think so. Um, I just encourage everyone in the pews to sing loudly and no one, everyone's just happy to hear your voices and singing can be such a a prayerful experience and just to join in with everyone is so lovely and as cantors and pianists and the music director we love to hear your voices so never be afraid to grab your hymnal and just sing along amen well thank you so much for coming on oh of course thank you for having me thank you for being with us today as we walk as pilgrims this road together If you feel called to learn more, please consider checking out St. Francis Xavier or your local Catholic Church. All are welcome into our community, as God loves us all equally. If you are interested in supporting the Vox SFX podcast, please visit sfxmissoula.org backslash donate. Until next time, go forth in peace and be the light of Christ in someone's day.